Hello, and welcome to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast, a podcast all about constructing your career in neurology. I'm your host, Kimberly Robeson from Albany Medical College. Today, as part of the Types of Careers series, we are going to be talking with Dr. Sarah Schmidt, Vice Chair of Education at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Emily Farr, Residency Program Director at Wake Forest, and Dr. Aaron Burstimming, Neurology Clerkship Director at UT Health Houston. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Schmidt, Farr, and Furstimming. Let's start by telling us a little bit about yourselves and how you incorporate medical education into your career. Dr. Schmidt, do you want to start? I have been working in medical education for my entire career as an academic neurologist. Currently, I serve as our vice chair of education, as you mentioned before, but I've also been our clerkship director for the last six years, and we have a large, robust clerkship at MUSC. I'm also involved as our Epilepsy Fellowship Program Director. And prior to that, when I was in my previous job, I was the Associate Program Director for our Epilepsy Fellowship. I think that being involved in education is one of the most exciting components of my job. And I think that being willing to be involved in whatever way possible has opened a lot of doors for me. Thank you. Uh, What about you, Dr. Farr? I graduated from Wake Forest as a resident and did my fellowship there as well and decided to stay on as faculty and served as the associate program director for a year and then took over as the program director for the residency program. And, you know, I love the opportunity to be a part of leading a program where I trained. I think that's been such a special opportunity for me. I'm very loyal to Wake Forest and to the residents that I work with. And I have found that being involved in residency education has provided me so many opportunities for growth and uh, really opened so many doors, as we've already said, for medical education. I've got the privilege, too, of leading the Consortium of Neurology Program Directors this past year, and it's been an amazing opportunity to make connections across the country to other medical educators. Just a really amazing opportunity. And Dr. Furstimming? Like Dr. Farr, I am a creature of habit. I have been at UT for many years now. I did my internship, residency, and fellowship all at UT Houston and then stayed on as faculty. I have actually been the clerkship director here for about 12 years. And I really have worked with the students throughout their journey at UT Houston McGovern Medical School. I teach some classes during the first year neuroscience course, and I'm a a third-year faculty advisor and a McGovern Society leader. So I really Really have the pleasure of watching our students develop. And then I obviously work closely with our residents and fellows as well. I am the immediate past chair of the AAN Consortium of Neurology Clerkship Directors. And that really has been an incredible opportunity to get to know my colleagues throughout the U.S. and hear all of the wonderful work that they're doing, learning from them and how to be a better medical educator. So I think as we're all of us that are chatting today and hopefully those that are learning recognize and appreciate just how rewarding uh, medical education can be. And so it's really been an, an honor to, to be an educator um, over the past years. Great. So I know for a lot of us, we've stayed where we ended up training. And for many people, these jobs sort of fall upon us. But what is it that got you involved in medical education initially? Dr. Schmidt? You know, it's funny. I I actually did not stay where I originally trained, although I did stay there immediately after my residency and internship. I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I stayed there as faculty for my first six or seven years. And for me, 
I feel like I end up educating people whether I want to or not. It's not so much a gift as it is something that you almost accidentally do. I think that if you're somebody who's really enthusiastic about what you do, if you're somebody who really loves neurology, who really loves your area of subspecialty interest, then I think you sometimes can't help but passing along that enthusiasm to others. I love neurology. I also love the subspecialty of epilepsy. And I think that that enthusiasm translates into inspiring others. You could get other people to share some of your enthusiasm over time. And that's how you become part of the medical education apparatus at your particular institution. And I think over time, I just found myself giving more and more lectures, both institutionally and nationally. And before I knew it, I had more and more formal teaching obligations, first with our residents and then with the residents and fellows. Then we started a whole lecture series for our fellows and our EEG technicians. And before you knew it, I was our medical school clerkship director when I went to a new institution. And again, I think a lot of it is just about being excited to teach, being excited when you can see that your students, your residents, your fellows are learning about the things that really inspire you. Thank you. What about you, Dr. Farr? I think that's right. I mean, I agree with all of that and have similar feelings about it. When I completed training, I found myself staying very engaged in resident education and wanting to see continued success of our program and really just being involved in mentoring the residents as they were coming through, just as so many faculty had mentored me as I was coming through. And I found myself with ideas and thoughts about how we could evolve and change and grow our training program. And I think just, you know, staying involved in that conversation and sharing ideas and sharing thoughts, I found myself just kind of, you know, being a part of that education community locally at my institution. And so those opportunities just sort of opened themselves up. I remember in the interview setting when I was sort of being interviewed for the position of residency program director and they asked me sort of what did I want to bring to the leadership of the training program and I remember saying that the thing I'm the most passionate about is creating community and I feel like medical education in many ways is medicine within a community and I've found that that's been the most rewarding part of being a educator and a program director more specifically is just creating a community around learning around the topic that we love to teach and the topic that our students and residents are interested in in learning about. And for me, that was why I felt like it was a good fit. And I think how it just sort of naturally fell into place for me to be to be in this role. And Dr. Firstiming? I really couldn't say it any better. My colleagues have absolutely articulated um, most of the reasons that I have pursued medical education. I think it really is about passion uh, and enthusiasm. And I'm passionate about the field of movement disorders and and medical education and, and love sharing that passion with our learners. I have found it incredibly rewarding, as I mentioned earlier, just watching the growth and development of of our learners and really supporting and and promoting their, their growth. 
I always joke and tell our students that at the beginning of the clerkship, I hope to brainwash them, pun intended, into pursuing neurology. Of course, I know that that will not be the case for most of our students, but um, to at least get them excited and enthusiastic about clinical neurology and more confident in performing the neuro exam. So I really think it, it's just about in folks that are interested in, in pursuing medical education, it's really you know, step one is just really feeling passionate about your field and you know, sharing that passion and, and supporting our learners. And Dr. Firstaming, what do you think makes someone a good teacher? Is this a skill that can be taught? Well, that's a great question. And in fact, I do. I do think it's a skill that can be taught. And there are programs out there that support uh, teaching and, and sort of educating the educators. We have some programs here locally, and I know there are programs available nationally. And in fact, a project through the AAN with both the, the Consortium of Neurology Clerkship Directors and the Consortium of Neurology Residency Program Directors um, to try to develop a residency uh, educator track to to help really in educating our, our educators and to develop a formal training training pathway for neurology trainees that are interested in pursuing careers in medical education to really develop and hone in on those teaching skills and, and other aspects of, of medical education. So I think really it's important before folks start you know, formally teaching our students or residents to, to sort of step back and, um, and evaluate their, their teaching skills and have others evaluate their teaching skills to really determine what style best works for, for them and, and for the learners. So on that note, Dr. Farr, how can we better prepare residents who are interested in education for a career in medical education? It's a great question. And actually, I'm asked this quite a lot um, during residency interviews because there is just so much interest now growing every year in, in medical education, I find. And I think providing experiences to our resident trainees just to kind of get a sense, you know, about what their teaching style is and, and what they're interested in. Do they love to encourage learners individually? Do they love to teach at the bedside? Do they love to incorporate patients into their teaching? Would they rather teach in a larger didactic sort of environment? I think having access to all of those opportunities for residents during their training really sort of builds their skill set as an educator. And then I think most importantly, being linked up with faculty mentors who are incredibly passionate about sharing their love of their field really just kind of continues that spark, you know, generation to generation. And when you meet a faculty member who really shares their love of neurology with you, then you decide, I want to do that for somebody coming behind me as well. And I think that's how that passion for education continues. Many places now have these medical education tracks in residency, and Dr. Schmidt, I know MUSC has one. How do you think those work? Do you think there's things we can do to make them better or to make them more standard across programs? That is also a great question. I think that it's important to have a well-developed framework in which these types of programs exist so that there are formal components associated with these programs that, as our other guests here have stated, you can identify what your particular skill set is as an educator, those areas in which you excel, because not everybody is going to excel at teaching in the same way. Some people are going to be more skilled as bedside educators. Some people will uh, have difficulty in formal lecture settings. And again, helping people to identify their particular skill sets is very important. And having a formal structure in place that really allows people to hone those skills, to recognize what it takes to be an excellent educator, 
and to pick up some kind of nuts and bolts tricks along the way, I think is really important. I agree with what our other guests have also said. It's really important to also have more senior mentorship involved in these types of projects. So somebody who has walked the walk and talked the talk before, who can give you more practical advice. You know, don't put so many words on a slide or try and keep your advice about the neurologic exam to one or two key points. Little things that you can tell people that will improve their ability to deliver teaching information. Switching gears a little bit, Dr. Schmidt, how do you prove productivity in education? How do you get protected time? How do you get promoted? This is definitely a challenge that I have heard from a lot of different educators that teaching is not necessarily something that they feel is valued as much as say research grants and uh, seeing clinical patients because it doesn't have the same amount of revenue generation. But I think many places have adopted different models that have allowed their institutions to recognize the value of education. One concept that's often put forward is the idea of an educational value unit, an EVU, as sort of a contrast to the traditional RVU that many of us are familiar with in the clinical setting. And the idea is that when you engage in educational activities with students, residents, and fellows, that that is associated with and amount of time that it takes you to do these things and that you get additional academic credit for being involved in these types of activities. It's always a little bit of a challenge in terms of negotiating with your department chair and your institution to make sure that your contributions are appropriately recognized. But I think increasingly different institutions are recognizing that across the board, everybody, regardless of their research background or their clinical background, needs to be developing a teaching portfolio as well. Thank you. Dr. Farr, have you found other things that work well at your institution? You know, I really love this topic, actually, because I think there's so much to talk about here. Definitely, there are opportunities, and they're different at every institution, to develop that form of sort of educational credit. But I also think there's also a lot of opportunities to discuss the sort of indirect value of of education. And as an educator myself, I think everything I do that involves medical students or residents makes me a better doctor, either directly or indirectly. And it also has really helped with my you know, career development and uh, potential for promotion. And there's so much that incorporating learners with your daily work can really help with all of those things. And it, it feels a bit difficult to prove that. I mean, it's a really great question because it is very difficult to, to prove it in a very sort of objective numerical way. But indirectly, when you look over the course of someone's career, so much of what we do and we're successful in doing has really been supported by our learners. So, you know, if you're a researcher, then incorporating medical students and residents into your research really helps with productivity. Not only do you share that opportunity, but it really does help move the project forward in many ways. And working with residents and medical students in clinic I find is a really great experience for our patients. And there's so much that our patients can learn from our students and vice versa. And that helps me as a clinician and taking call with residents and working on inpatient services. And so much of the questions that they ask me continue to make me a a better physician as well. And that opens up research opportunities with colleagues across the country as I'm setting up my residents with fellowships and I'm making those connections for them and writing their letters of recommendation. Everything that just is a part of what we do sort of during our regular day really has an opportunity to bring us closer to to things that can advance our own career. So 
it's such an important topic to think through. We really want to be sure that faculty in educational environments recognize not only the opportunity for true um, protected time and salary support, but really the indirect piece that is what we really love about education. And Dr. First Dimming, do you have anything to add? Hard to add to that, but I mean, I would just sort of reiterate what's been said already. It It is challenging. We all know the value of medical education. Certainly don't have to convince us. It's really convincing sometimes, you know, the administrators and folks that maybe aren't as in tune to what medical education is all about. Not every program, of course, has educational RVUs, if you will, in place. And so it can be challenging to use your educational portfolio to support your protected time. But I I think it is important to think about developing an educational portfolio and starting that as early as possible. And so this is really kind of a separate document from your your CV and includes really anything education related. So things that we might not even kind of think about and as far as, as documenting our efforts, but any evaluations from your learners, any curriculum development materials, any honors, awards, recognition that you've been given, any, you know, mentoring or advising or bedside teaching, just trying to document as much as you can along the way. This is, you know, obviously a dynamic document, but I think that that's something really important when you go to meet with your leadership or even administrators to sort of protect your time as a medical educator. I think the more documentation you have, the better. So that would be the only other piece I would sort of elaborate on along those lines, making sure, as it's already been mentioned, that you have a mentor or a guide to support you in practices as a medical educator. Dr. Farr and First Dimming, I know you are both actively involved in the AAN and serve as the chairs of the CNPD and CNCD, respectively. What resources are available to new PDs and clerkship directors? Dr. Farr, should we start with you? Sure. You know, the AAN is incredibly supportive to certainly to program directors, and there are a lot of resources on their website just to start that help with guidance and just kind of a toolkit about getting started uh, as a new program director. Within the consortium of neurology program directors, we have set up a monthly sort of virtual conversation corner where we all meet virtually and chat about topics that are current and interesting questions we might have. There are mentor relationships that are established that are supported through the AAN for new program directors and seasoned program directors love to link up with those who are new and just starting and and to act as mentors. So there are a lot of resources and the AAN has been incredibly sorted. Certainly for me, um, starting out as a program director, I looked to the AAN for guidance and have met a lot of wonderful educators who've been models to me in the field. And I couldn't agree more. There are really great resources on the AN website. We've just completed and posted a clerkship director toolkit. And we have also hosted virtual conversation corners, I guess one of the the silver linings of of COVID in our new virtual world. The conversation corners have been great. They've been really productive and therapeutic. Uh, We find ourselves all struggling with similar challenges. And so it's, it's really great to hear that, one, we're not alone, and two, to hear, you know, strategies that have worked and maybe some that haven't been as as effective. So I would strongly encourage folks that are listening to just go through the the AN website. And there's also the Synapse page and and online community where you can just post questions to your, your colleagues. What advice do you have for residents and junior faculty members? What do you wish you had known at that stage of your career? Dr. Schmidt? One thing that I don't know if I necessarily grasped when I was immediately beginning my 
career as a junior faculty member is that in order to be really effective as a teacher, it helps to have a pretty good body of clinical experience as well. The more clinical experience that you gain over time, the more effective I feel like I've become as a teacher, the more kind of unusual cases that I've seen, the more physical exams I've performed, the more I'm able to explain and convey some of those nuances to the learners I work with. And so I think that's something that I didn't necessarily always appreciate as much when I was a resident or a fellow, how much that clinical experience was going to help me in the future. Dr. Firstimming? My advice, just make sure that you document your, your wins, even if they feel tiny and insignificant, document, keep track of all the wonderful things that, that you're doing along the way. I th it's hard because we, you know, most of us are overachievers, type A personalities, some maybe still in the closet, others not so much, but it's, it can be hard because you kind of want to do everything. And so please, you know, try to sort of be intentional about your path and set, set boundaries if and when you can. And set some realistic short-term goals, but then, of course, set some sort of long-term goals along the way as well. And most importantly, as we've mentioned a couple of times already, find a, a mentor or a couple of mentors to help give you support and, and guide you along the way. And Dr. Farr? You know, I think I'll add to that. I agree with all that, too. And, and I think being intentional is incredibly important. I think it's right. You know, when you're a junior faculty and you're offered opportunities serving on committees and various things, we're inclined to, to sort of say yes to everything, which is probably okay in the beginning as you're trying to figure out how you want to be involved in, in education or other aspects of the operations of your institution. But one thing I wish I had done earlier, if we're thinking about just sort of specifically career development, is understanding the promotion pathways and opportunities at my institution, like documenting that educational portfolio and being very intentional about what I get involved in and how that's going to move my career trajectory forward. There's a lot of good to be done in things that don't necessarily move you toward promotion, for sure. But just keeping in mind that bigger picture, keeping in mind how we're spending our time, where we're putting our focus, and how is it benefiting our patients and our learners and ourselves, being very intentional about making those choices, I think, is important right from the beginning. Great. And finally, what's your favorite part about what you do, Dr. Firstimming? That's actually a tough question. I love really all aspects of what I do, but I think besides clinical care and the gift and beauty of visiting with my patients and their caregivers with mostly Huntington's disease and, and Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. I love working with our students and residents and, and fellows and really watching them engage with our, our patients and really watching their growth. And it's incredibly rewarding because as we all know, it's the practice of medicine. We're all learners. One of my favorite aspects is, is just the process of visiting with patients educating our, our learners while we're doing that and really you know, watching them as they continue to move forward on their path. Dr. Farr? I think watching that development really is such an honor. And throughout the process of residency training, I'm constantly surprised at how much growth I see in our, in our residents. They find their path. They go through a lot of personal development, it's a very important time in life, you know, that stage. And so we see a lot of sort of personal changes in life outside of, of their work uh, within the hospital. And then we also see an incredible amount of professional development and growth and maturity. 
I think my favorite time of year is is graduation because it gives me an opportunity to think back on how far each of my residents has come. And I'm incredibly proud of and in awe of all of the the growth and just seeing where they fit, you know, the career they've chosen. And Dr. Schmidt? I could not agree more with everything that has been said thus far. So there is no greater joy for me as a medical educator than watching the trainees that I've worked with thrive and excel. I have students that I worked with who have already completed their neurology residency, who have even completed an epilepsy fellowship. I have shepherded them through different parts of their career. I saw them when they were just starting to get excited about neurology. I got to see them as they progressed in their neurology training. For some of them, I even managed to talk them into a career in epilepsy. So then I get to get them excited about EEG. And even for those who don't go into epilepsy, I get to see them become attending physicians. I get to see them make their way in the world and become successful neurologists. And for me, that is the most exciting aspect of what we do. There is no greater honor as a mentor than watching your mentees succeed. And I am at a point in my career now where I find myself writing letters of recommendation for people who are once my residents and my fellows. And looking at all that they have accomplished to me is so incredibly exciting and fulfilling. And for me, that is something that I look forward to every day. I am constantly impressed with what my residents, my fellows, my students are able to accomplish. Well, thank you everyone for taking the time out of your busy schedules to talk with us. I know we all really appreciate it. Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast was created and produced by Sarah Schaefer. It is not recorded as an official podcast of any institution or organization. The product is unfunded. The opinions of those are the individual participants. Music by Audrey Nath, artwork by Shivani Goshal. Want more content like this? Be sure to subscribe to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast on your favorite platform to hear more about constructing your career in neurology. Follow us on Twitter at NeuroBolts and on Facebook at Neurology Nuts and Bolts to stay up to date on new content and give us feedback on what you want to hear and tell your friends. Thanks for joining us.